0: So we're going to go ahead and jump into our study. We're coming to the end. This is week six of an overview of basic ecclesiology and healthy church life. I've very much appreciated the feedback and comments from uh, many of you. The discussions around this has been um, just very helpful. What we'll do next week is we'll have a shorter time where we'll just do an overview of each of these messages. And I want to have a time of Q&A, of questions. So as we go through these, even this morning, if you have questions, next Sunday will be very informal, even somewhat casual, and we'll just discuss anything that may be on your mind as we just go through and make sure before we leave this series that we are rooted, that we understand, and there's nothing else that we need to explore any further. I would encourage you to, today being the last message, to please make sure you've listened to all of them. By next Sunday, at least online, I'll need to re give that survey next Sunday and we'll see if um, the responses have changed any. So please, if you've had nursery or been away, listen to all of them. We're looking at biblical responses to basic questions. Let's do a very brief summary. In message one, we looked at what is the church? So, what is a church? What makes a church significant? In message two, we looked at how is the church ordered? with regenerate church membership, with qualified leadership, and we looked at how to organize the church according to the Bible. Number three, in the third message, we looked at why does the church exist? The church exists for the worship of God, for the discipleship of one another, and for missions to the nations. And then over the last couple of weeks, we looked at the distinctives of a true church. How do you know that you have a true church? Well, we've looked over and over on the last couple of weeks. First of all, you have the preaching of the gospel. You have the response to the preaching of the gospel through believers' baptism. And then the partaking of the Lord's Supper. This is what makes a church a church. This is what's called the being of the church or the essay of the church. The very essence of a church so that if you don't have these things, you don't have a church. We're going to transition today and we're gonna look at what has classically been called the Benet essay, which is the well-being of a church. So you practice these marks of a church, but we're gonna take that a step farther and say, how do you know if a church is healthy? And how can we be more healthy at Reformation Baptist Church? What is the well-being of a church? Charles Spurgeon famously put it this way in one of his sermons. He said put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history and I will find a little marginal note reading thus in this age men could readily see where the church began and where the church and where the world ended he said never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another the more the church is distinct from the world the more true is her testimony for Christ And the more potent is her witness against sin. So we're going to look at the distinctives of a healthy church, and we'll see how much time we have. I also want us to look at the distinctives of a Baptist church, and then as much time as left at the end, we'll look at the distinctives of a Reformed Baptist church. And we can explore this more in the future as need be if time runs out. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We've looked at Ephesians chapter 4 sometime ago, but this world provides a lot of different ideas about what healthy church looks like, about how to grow a church. I recently read this. I think that this would sum up many churches today. A particular man regarding a story that he had heard about a friend's church said, a friend recently read me a letter from a prominent Texas church they had just planted a satellite campus in Florida. He said the letter was addressed to pastors and described the church's strategy for getting Floridians to the new campus. Their approach? Direct mailings, free giveaways, good parking, friendly waving greeters, gourmet coffee, nicely polished wood tables, and excellent signage. The writer was enthusiastic, even giddy, to be sharing his church's experience as an encouragement to other pastors who longed to see their own churches succeed. Yet that's all he said. Not a word about teaching, prayer, or holiness in the lives of church members. Knowing what your consumers wanted was the first step, and finding the techniques to meet their desires was the second. Welcome to what many call the outcome of the church growth movement. Friends, we know that this is nothing short of merely ridiculous. But how do you know how to grow a church and what a healthy church is? Did you know that the Bible already tells us that? We don't have to make it up. In Ephesians chapter 4, we get the biblical blueprint for true church growth. If you'll remember in our study through Ephesians... In chapter 2, verse 15, the church is no longer divided along ethnic lines, but is one new body and man at peace with God and one another, radiating the very presence of God we see at the end of chapter 2. And through that, declaring to cosmic creatures as a witness to God's manifold wisdom. And look with me in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just breeze through and we'll pick up the main... Points that Paul makes here. In verses one through three, we read, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. First of all, the biblical blueprint for true church growth is pursuing holy unity as a covenant community. We begin in verses 1 through 3 with the practical picture of healthy church life. If everything that we saw in chapter 1, 2, and 3 is true, and it is, then this is what it should look like in our lives. By living at peace with one another, as you look in verses 2, 3, even 4, we begin to treat each other the way God has treated us, which is graciously. Look in your Bibles at the words and themes that are developed. Humility, gentleness, patience, even forbearance. In the light of God's treatment of us, believers protect the unity that the Holy Spirit has already created. The Spirit and only the Spirit creates unity in the church, and that is already established. Now, the Bible says that we're to maintain that unity that the Spirit's already created. So we have a responsibility in our relationships with one another. And friends, make no mistake about it, there will be plenty of opportunities to develop these characteristics in the church. Because we are sinners in relationship with sinners, and we are sinning against one another regularly. So there will be plenty of opportunities to develop patience, to humble ourselves before one another, and to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christy and I were talking yesterday, oftentimes young men, young ladies will come to us, come to the pastors, and they'll want to be married. And oftentimes they've never been committed in a single local church. And maybe they've been to this church and that one. But it's always frightening to me to marry a young person who's never had a consistent relationship covenanting with a single local church. Because they've been here and been there, but they've never experienced living life together and committing to sinners as a sinner and persevering through that. And now they're going to commit their lives to be married to one for the rest of their life? Friends, this is what the local church does. Church unity is not an ideal luxury. Church unity in the Bible is an urgent necessity And where we all pursue not our own ends, but in unison together the will of Christ. Look with me in verses 3 through 6. We see that the foundation theologically for preserving this unity is the theological truth that there is one church united by one spirit for one hope of eternal joy under one Lord in one faith through one baptism, all by one sovereign Father. So we're united in all of these essentials and we're to preserve this unity that the Spirit's created as a reflection of the God who bound us together. We continue in verses 7 through 12. And now Paul moves here And he shows us another aspect of true and healthy church growth. And it's this, being equipped for gospel ministry under biblical authority. Look with me in Ephesians 4. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, God gives gifts to the church and to each member of the church. Here's where I really want you to zero in on me. God distributes spiritual gifts to you, to us, at salvation variously. He scatters them abroad. No one person has all the gifts. But make no bones about it. He may do that variously, and He does that sufficiently, but He does not do that randomly. You have the spiritual gift that God gave you because He intended that just for you. Question, look at me. Respond. How many of you know your spiritual giftedness? Raise your hand. How many of you are aware of it? Now, let me just say, I do believe that a large number of you use it, your spiritual gifts. I see it. But my question is, do you know your spiritual gift? Raise your hand if you do. If you're fairly confident that you know your spiritual gift. I want you to notice the transition between verses 1 to 6 to 7 to 12. One person put it this way, unity does not mean uniformity. So just because we're unified doesn't mean that God makes us all exactly the same. As a matter of fact, He makes us all different and gives us gifts that are different from one another on purpose. So that way, the body of Christ is built up, each person, with an important, unique part. I want you to know Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Highlights gifts in prophecy, in service, in teaching, exhorting, leading, acts of mercy, contributing. You can take all of those gifts and go back home and read that passage. But I also want you to note with that 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And those two lists alongside 1 Corinthians 12, you have three passages right there that lay out gifts in the church. Now, there are some gifts, such as the gifts of tongues and healing and prophecy, that seem to have ceased with the first century. I don't intend to get down that road, and I think that that would be a distraction for our purposes this morning. But I do want you to note, look in your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at clear gifts that are operative in the church today. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 4 is such a beautiful passage where it shows how God has scattered the gifts to the people. It doesn't matter if you're more quiet or introverted. It doesn't matter if if maybe you're more extroverted and out front, God has uniquely gifted you to serve somewhere in a meaningful way in the body. And when we talk about spiritual gifts, you're going to see in 1 Corinthians 12, we're not talking about natural abilities. Uh, So, Mr. Lucky, you may have a natural ability for working with wood, for carpentry, for whatever that may be. And each of you have different natural abilities. This is a supernatural ability. Now you can use your natural abilities for the glory of God, but God has divinely enabled us for the purpose of the body to serve in specific ways. In verse 4 we read, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So whatever gift God gave you, God did not give you that gift so that you could flaunt it, but so that you could edify and build up the body of Christ. Look in verse 18. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. And He uses the illustration of a human body. If all were a single member, where would the body be? Look up here, let me ask you a question. Would you take $1,000, $1,000 for all of your toes? Anybody take $1,000 for all of your toes? Anybody take $100,000 for all of your toes? Anybody? Going once, going twice? There are two uniquely insane people in here. Anybody else with sanity take $100,000 for all of your toes? Anybody? Anybody else? I don't have $100,000, Brian and Mike, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> why would you not take $1,000? I'm just going to be honest with you. I wouldn't take a million dollars for all of my toes. I want to keep all of my toes. But why? They're hidden. You can't even see them. Because even though they're hidden, they play a vital role for the sake of the whole. Every part matters. And God has given a precise enablement for each part of the body for building up His purpose for the glory of Christ. So how can you know your spiritual gifts? Let me give you just a few quick points. I would suggest before you take some sort of spiritual inventory test that may and may not be helpful, and doing that in isolation, read the passages in the Bible. Begin serving somewhere in the church. Just begin serving. Ask other church members and leaders around you, what supernatural enablement do you seem to have that seems to come natural for you? And whereas it doesn't with other people. Now, in the meantime, what you can't do is say, well, I don't have the spiritual gift, Stephanie, of working in the nursery and helping with the four and five year olds class. so We're going to leave that to everybody else. No, this means that you need to serve wherever is needed. And we can't use this as as an excuse, okay? But it also means that you have somewhere that God intends for you to serve and not just sit. Because listen to me, friends, God saved you to serve and not to sit. And so what this means is that, for instance, uh, Luke, you may have the gift of evangelism. And because God has uniquely gifted you in that way, that does not mean that the rest of us should not be evangelizing. That is ridiculous. Luke has the gift of evangelism. We'll let him do the hard stuff. And it also doesn't mean, Luke, that you can say, hey, look how easy and natural this comes from for me. So the rest of you should sit in shame because you're not as good at this as I am. Which happens, does it not? Not. What this means is that, Luke, God has uniquely geared and gifted you in a certain way with a divine enablement that's supernatural, but for you it just seems to come naturally. And God has gifted you in that way so that you can help edify the rest of us to be good in that particular area because we're all responsible to do it. Does that make sense? My wife, there is no doubt, she is in her element practicing the gift of hospitality. Matter of fact, when people are over at our house, sometimes I'll just sit back and I'll just watch her and she doesn't even realize it, but the glory of Christ is just shining and she is enjoying it and the Lord just moves and I'm just somewhat out of my element, but she just shines there. Others of you, the thought of inviting people into your home, it may be more fun to individually pull all of your teeth out without medication. Because God has gifted each of us differently. Then I, we have more fun being with Chris and Tammy now. I laugh. My stomach hurts from laughing so much. You guys are just in your element when you have people in your home. You, there is no doubt in my mind you have the gift of hospitality. You just feel warm. You feel welcome. Spiritual things just flow naturally. And that's just a gift that you clearly have. As soon as you walk through the door, you're just encouraged. Did you know that God's given each of you a particular gift somewhere to serve in a meaningful way? But I want you to look in your Bibles. He moves from members to leaders. And what we see is that in the book of Ephesians, that God is pervading the world with His presence and His rule. He's extending His reign over His enemies in verses 7, 8, and 9. And to that end, He's demonstrating His glory by giving gifts to the church and especially uniquely gifting leaders. And God gives leaders to the church for a purpose. Look in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ. So our job is not to do all the ministry, but our job is to help you, to teach you, to lead you so that you can find where God has enabled you to serve in the church and in your daily life. The role of the pastors, the leaders, is to equip the people to do what God has called them to do. I love how H.B. Charles put it. On the ship to Zionsville, there are no passengers, all are crew. On the ship of Reformation Baptist Church, there are no passengers, every single one of us are crewed. Instead of shepherds, however, who feed the sheep, what we oftentimes see today is leaders who become clowns entertaining goats. Number three, and finally, we're to grow in Christian maturity through mutual accountability. Look in verses 13 through 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness Of Christ. He goes on to talk about how we're to be doctrinally sound so that we're not taken away by whatever the latest trend or book or movie or social media post or next great speaker who comes along. We're to be rooted in the faith. And I want you to note this. This may be the most important thing that I say all morning. I want you to note this. How do you know the measure of a church's health? There are a lot of different ways out there today that churches are measured in their success, their fruitfulness. And so how do you know biblically that we're doing what we are called to do? And how do you have a benchmark to see whether we are or we aren't? I would submit to you very simply three benchmarks for how to know if you have a healthy church. I would submit Joel... What you did was, I thought, was very helpful on Facebook. You just did that all on your own. And I was so encouraged and so interested in looking at the answers that were given, not only from our church, but the results. A lot of different things, as Joel asked, what do you, if you go to another town, what are the primary things that you should look for before you commit to a church? What should you look for? Let me just summarize and give you three, very generally speaking. The measure of a church's health is its unity in the truth. Unity in the truth. Is the truth of God's Word being proclaimed? Is is there unity around that truth? I would say also maturity in ministry. Are there nothing but spectators watching a show up front and then returning back the following Sunday? Or is there growing maturity where people are involved in serving in ministry? Maturity in Scripture, maturity in the relationships with one another. And finally, and ultimately, I would say that the number one foundational benchmark for the measure of a church's health is conformity to Jesus Christ. What this means, let's think practically, is that the modern benchmarks for church growth are not even mentioned. And what are they? Budgets, buildings, and bodies. If this is true, then what this means is you may not have an impressive budget. You may not have an impressive building and you may not be growing numerically. a matter of fact, you may be decreasing numerically. Although that's not what we desire, we want to see people saved and added. The question is not how many are coming. The question is how many are being conformed to the character of Christ. That's what we desire to see. And that is something that you can't always document with numbers and concrete things. Jesus is the one who is ultimately building His church. But Jesus has allowed us to participate in the construction process and we must be careful, Reformation Baptist Church, that we continue to build according to our chief architect's blueprint. Not by a marketing scheme. Let's go through some distinctives of a healthy church. Some distinctives of a church that's growing and healthy and fruitful. Oftentimes today, it seems like as soon as people, as long as people are coming and as long as people are enthused, then it's like people consider that a healthy church. Let me give you some distinctives of a truly healthy church. And let's just walk through and we'll spend as much time on each as we have time. First and foremost, sound doctrine. And that was the number one thing that was mentioned in the post that you put out. Almost everyone in our church, I think everyone mentioned that. Sound doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, what has happened is that false teachers have crept into the church. And Paul's first order of business through Timothy is to establish sound doctrine. That the church believes what the Bible says, and then they're ordered around that. And what we see in First Timothy chapter one verse five, is it the truth? is that the truth of God produces love, he says, from a pure heart, from a good conscience and a sincere faith. Truth issues forth in lives of love, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The depth and the truthfulness, of the doctrine that's taught in the church, will manifest itself in the health of the church. We see in 1 Timothy that false teachers had wandered into vain discussions. They were misusing God's Word and His law. But 2 Timothy tells us that Scripture really is sufficient in order to conform us to Christ, to teach, to rebuke, to correct, to train in righteousness. We really believe that the Bible is enough. As Martin Luther once famously said, the church is a mouthhouse for Holy Scripture. And we make no apology for the fact that we spend a significant portion of our service simply reading the Bible, because the church is a mouthhouse for Holy Scripture. And so as a child must be trained to eat a well-balanced diet, to become a healthy human, Christians must be equipped to know what and how to eat. I want to teach you how to eat. I want to give you a few words as it pertains to sound doctrine for you to note. Number one, the word exegesis. Exegesis means that when we study the Bible, we sit under what the Bible says and we draw out of it what God intended to put into it. The opposite of that is eisegesis, which means I stand above the Bible, the Bible's down here, and I make the Bible say what I want it to say. So in other words, what we see in much preaching today is a preacher with a topic in search of a text. You understand? They already know what they're going to say. Now they're going to the Bible to figure out what they're going to make the Bible say. And that's our bone with much contention today in, in preaching. And by the way, we've been in a six-week topical series. But don't worry, because when we finish this, we're going back to Ephesians. And then we're going to Colossians. And then we're going to spend about a decade in First and Second Corinthians. So we're going to have a lot of verse-by-verse verse on top of John and on top of Genesis. But we're just taking a break and look at some big-picture things. Another one that I want you to consider to help us learn a healthy diet. It's not just exegesis, but a word that's called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics just simply means that you are learning how to study the Bible. So in our expositional preaching, we want to preach in such a way that you're te- we're teaching you how to study the Bible. So when Adam's going through the book of John, verse by verse, and I'm sitting listening, you don't realize it's going on, but as you're listening, you're learning how to study the Bible for yourself. There is a particular way that we study the Bible to understand what God put in it correctly. When we say the word doctrine, we just refer to teaching. It's just a fancy word for what you believe. Another word, biblical theology. Biblical theology is a $100 word that just simply means that you're studying the Bible the way God wrote it. From Genesis to Revelation, you're reading the progressive storyline of how God is making a name for Himself and demonstrating His character through Moses, through Joshua, through the prophets, through John the Baptist. And you're seeing this whole picture unfold. Are you with me? We move then to systematic theology. Systematic theology is just simply a fancy word that just means you are studying what the whole Bible says about a particular topic. I didn't stand up here and say this because it's not necessary, but what we've been doing for the last six weeks is systematic theology. You're theologians. We are taking the doctrine of the church and we're seeing what the whole Bible has to say about that doctrine. Is everybody with me? We're looking at it from an overview. And so that's systematic theology. And that's important in a Christian's diet. Finally, there's... Grammatical historical method of study. When we do Bible study, we study the grammatical historical by by that method. Which simply means that we study the historical context of the words. We study the historical context of the words. Let's move to another one. There's a lot more we could say there. What should you look for in a church? Number two, expositional preaching. Expositional preaching. Preaching, I would define personally this way. Preaching is an authoritative and urgent proclamation that demands a response. It's biblical, it's Christ-centered, but when you teach, some of you, I've noticed, don't really understand the difference in this, so let me just take a minute to explain the difference between teaching and preaching. When you teach, you inform and you instruct and you give information. In this particular moment, I'm informing and giving you information. When you preach, you teach or you don't preach. When you preach, you inform and you give information. Is everybody with me? But when you you preach, you do more than when you teach. Is everybody with me? Can I do this so I'll know whether to back up or not? Teaching is instruction and information. Preaching is also instruction and information, but with the added of a demand for a response. So preaching is, here's the information, and you've got to respond right now in these particular ways. There is an urgency to respond. We could add a lot more to that. But at the very basis, there's a distinction. On the other hand, there's a difference, and this is foundational, in expositional preaching. What we do in expositional preaching is we do three things we read the Bible, we explain the Bible, and we apply the Bible. There's a lot of preaching going on, but there's not much expositional preaching. And so what we recovered through the Reformation is simply taking the Bible, open it up to a particular book, and whether you preach a chapter or a whole book or whatever it is, you're just simply going through the Bible and you're reading it, you're explaining it, and you're applying it. And that's how you know that you have an expositional sermon. In a nutshell, it means that the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. So you say, what are you going to talk about in your next sermon? Well, I don't know because I don't have the authority to decide that. See, the Bible's already set the agenda, and so I'm just going to go with what the Bible's already said, and I'm going to figure out how the Bible's laid that text out. So when I do my series on the family, I'm not collecting a lot of thoughts because the Bible's already told me in Ephesians 5, verses 22 through the end of the chapter. So I'm just going to go with what's already there. Expositional preaching is fundamental and foundational for the regular healthy diet of the church. It's where you're exposing God's voice to the text. Number three, saving faith. Saving faith. By the way, I've got to mention this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest expositors since I would argue possibly since Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Martin Lloyd-Jones came to his church, and I crack up every time I think of this, But he was ministering in a day when the pulpit was being overtaken by everything else. Drama, uh, with skits and plays, and a lot of other things. And when Lloyd-Jones came to Westminster Chapel in London, England, he literally bolted the pulpit to the floor. And he put it in the center of the building as if to say, this isn't going anywhere. And the modern idea was you can't preach long sermons because they can't handle that. They're not interested in that. So you got to do something to entertain them to keep them. And Lloyd-Jones says, we're not doing that here. You can take that down the road. And he bolts the pulpit to the floor. And then they come to him and they say, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, what should we do with the drama stage? And lloyd Jones's classic reply was this, You can burn it and put it in the furnace to heat the church for all I care, but we're going to preach the Bible here. Because we don't need the drama stage anymore. Number three, saving faith. Saving faith. You see, church activity, if we're not careful, can provide a shelter from the gospel. Church activity can provide a shelter from the gospel if we're not careful where one earns and keeps God's favor by lunging into spiritual service. But what is central in the life of a church is that the best we can tell that people are truly saved. Not just obviously praying prayers and responding to public invitations, but there are truly heart changes Christians in their lifestyle should look significantly different from that of the world. And so it's important that church members are Christians. B.H. Carroll was an early Baptist and he said this, The church is a spiritual body. None but the regenerate should belong to it. It is not a savior, but the home of the saved. Number four, another one is biblical worship. Biblical worship. God created us for worship. And we're natural born uh, experts in worship. Our problem fundamentally, however, is a worship problem because we have a sinful tendency to worship what's created rather than properly worshiping the Creator. In 1 Timothy 3.15, we see that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And the church should be the center of biblical worship. So we ought to be worshiping individually. We should set aside times for worship in our homes. We should worship as a lifestyle. Our entire lives should be worshiped. We should set aside times where we just read the Bible and pray on our own, where we do that as families. And then we should gather together to worship as churches regularly. And where we do what the Bible has told us to do, and we'll talk about that a little later But when we worship, it's important to remember that worship is not a performance by professionals. Worship requires genuine participation by all members. Here's another one I want to give you that's incredibly important. And I want to drill down here just for a minute. Covenantal membership. Covenantal membership. I want you to turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. And I want to show you a few things leading up to Titus 2. And then I want you to see Titus 2. Scripture provides the biblical blueprint for family life. Because we're a faith family. What we see is you go to Titus. I want to kind of catch you up to that. In 1 Timothy, we see that the men of the church are to pray with pure hands. They're to proclaim Christ and they're to pray with holy hearts. The Bible says that women, in 1 Timothy 2, are to adorn themselves with modesty, self-control, good works, and submissiveness. Women are not to exercise authority over the church, but they're to teach other women, to train their children. We also see in 1 Timothy that church members should treat older men respectfully as fathers. The Bible says that younger men should be treated courteously as brothers. Older women should be honored as mothers. Younger women should be treated graciously as sisters. Widows should be appropriately cared for. Look in Titus 2. We see a blueprint. We're not going to read it. But we see what older men and women should be and what they should do. They should train the younger. And the younger should open their hearts to learning from the older. Friends, what this means is there may be times, and there is times in our church where it's good for us to gather in our particular groups. But the overarching, dominating thrust of our church should be what we see in the Bible, and that's that we should look like a family. On on Sundays, particularly after after church, I want our kids to look out and see a family reunion. I don't want our kids to look out and only see teenagers. I don't want them to look out and only see two-year-olds. I want them to gather together intergenerationally where the older are teaching the younger, not slipping off by themselves. And certainly there's appropriate times to... We have times where we just teach children, we have just women's events, and these things are good. But we don't turn our church into a group of competing tribes. And we don't bind ourselves together by things other than Christ. Here's a good question that I think you can ask of a church. Is this church a healthy church? Here's one indicator. How many people are hanging around 30 minutes after the service? After everything is done and the amen is said, how many people are still there within 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes? If you're on the security team in this church, raise your hand. You are miserable after church, and I know Because you can't get home. They won't shut up and they won't get out the door. And you're like flicking the lights. This is a sign. It's time to go. You you go where you want, but you can't stay here. They're not getting the signs. They're still hanging out and it's pitch black dark. So you start whatever setting sirens to try to get people out of the building. Friends, in my opinion, this is a picture of healthy church life. Not that we have a tendency to make our security team miserable, but that we just get together on Sundays and we want to spend time with each other. Friends, when you join this church, you're not just committing to attend, although you are. You are committing to intertwine your lives with one another. And so a church should be committed to covenantal membership. First Timothy 2.12 And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. We should meet regularly and we should live together communally. We live in a day today where younger generations want community, but they're not willing to do what it takes to have it. They're not willing to give the commitment to a particular people in a particular place to have it. And this is what we signify through our church covenant. And this is why we read our church covenant during the Lord's Supper, because we're renewing ourselves together to Christ and to each other. Let me give you another one, and we talked about this last week, so we'll just briefly look, glance through it. And it's church discipline. I'll just be honest with you, if for whatever reason God were to ever have our family in another place, I couldn't join a church that does not practice church discipline. Period. Period. And church discipline is going on all the time. Anytime you have a problem with your brother in any way, and you go to your brother, and you simply just talk about that. You don't have to have a sit-down, formal, face-to-face, tense meeting where veins are showing. You just go and say, Hey, brother, I, maybe I misunderstood you here. But unfortunately, what that will escalate to without repentance is eventually as we pursue one another, and we we see some of us that continue to pursue our sin more than we pursue Christ. That gets to a point to where we have to at some point say they have they have no desire to repent. I don't even think that this person's saved. And over a period of gracious pursuing that person, whatever that concern is, and so there's a difference in a sin that is just a. Sin that you would expect of all Christians, although it needs to be repented of and taken seriously? And there's a difference in a sin that goes so far that the church has to say, I don't even think this person's a Christian anymore. And so we are committed to pursue those who stray from the faith and to restore them back to the joy of the truth. Friends, look at me just for a moment. How, how many churches today are practicing church discipline? This is, a, this is unknown in most places. They've never even heard of this. I want you to understand that the way things are now are not the way things have already always been. I don't say that to shame other churches. Matter of fact, I'm fixing to preach the opposite in just a few minutes, so you better put your seatbelt on. And I would encourage you also to come to the church picnic today. But I want to make an opposite point right now. The way things are now are not the way things have always been. Did you know that in pre-Civil War days, in Georgia, Southern Baptists excommunicated 2% of their members every year? Every year. And that doesn't even count the many cases that came before the church. Matter of fact, pre-Civil War days in the South, Baptist churches wouldn't even consider a church a church that didn't practice church discipline because they all did and it was just normal. Friends, how far we have fallen in this area. The role of the pastor changed drastically. The pastor was no longer a shepherd who preached the truth and guided and loved the people, he became a local celebrity who just tried to gear up his blog or his podcast or, or just become a speaker of meetings rather than shepherding the flock. We'll continue moving next of all to spiritual unity as a distinction of a church. The Spirit creates unity and we must maintain this unity. And what this does not mean is that we have to have such a superficial approach to the truth that we only agree in a handful of small things so that we can all be unified. This doesn't mean that we sacrifice what we believe. Matter of fact, I want you to listen very carefully because I think Ian Murray explains this better than anyone else I've ever heard. He said that spiritual unity is not that all opinions on beliefs not essential to salvation are to be laid aside as of small importance. That does not believe that because as Baptists, we believe that you need to be immersed as a Christian, that we need to just let that go so that we can be one with Presbyterians. It does not mean that. We have convictions that we stand on. Paul warns strongly against a minimalist attitude to the truth. And this is the thrust of the culture today. Surrender everything that you believe and just believe Jesus and then we can all be one unified unit where we see Roman Catholics and Protestants and everybody else at the table as if we're all the same. Friends, that is blasphemy. He says what may be called secondary differences among Christians are not of no consequence and they may be sufficiently important to prevent the formal unity of Christians in the same denomination. Therefore, because of life in a a fallen world, we're going to have denominations. It's a reality. Freedom of conscience to interpret Scripture is far better than an external unity imposed on all. And so we're going to have denominations because we're going to come down differently on what the Bible teaches about important aspects of church life. At the same time, it's essential to recognize that differences of understanding among Christians are never to be allowed to transcend the truth that makes them one in Christ. So even though we have differences with Methodists, with Presbyterians on the other hand of the spectrum, on other brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe for many of them, we couldn't be in the same church together. We realize, listen to me, that we will be in heaven together. And even though we can't iron out all the details right here and right now, we need to be unified as much as we can on everything which which we can. Friends, I have some of my best friends in the faith, and they will give good answers that I think are wrong as we walk through the tulip, as we walk through unconditional election and limited atonement, irresistible grace, and we're going to fall differently. And I'm going to say that I think they're dead wrong, and it is an important wrong. And many of my best friends, if they tried to join our church, I'd have a hard time with it. But I'm telling you, they are brothers in Christ. They are doing wonderful gospel ministry. And there are many things that I can learn from them that I don't know. We're not going to iron all that stuff out down here. But we need to seek to show unity in the truth as much as we can. And as people who have very little in common in the world's eyes, love each other even though they can't agree on everything. And they do that closer than a natural family. Ephesians 3.10 says that all of heaven looks on with wonder at what the gospel of Christ has created. Another one is prayer dependency. Prayer dependency is the mark of a church. I didn't intend to do this, but why don't we just have a little fun. How many of you have noticed that in our services and in our member meetings, just be honest, we spend a little bit more time in prayer than we used to? Raise your hand. We're in church. Can we just be honest? How many of you during one of the prayers in our member meeting or in the service? Prayer of confession at the beginning, the, prayer, the pastoral prayer at the end, John Matulia's prayer in the member meeting, and you just begin to think, how long is this going to go on? Can we just be honest? Raise your hand. We know that. We know that. We're not used to praying together for lengthy periods of time. But I want to encourage you and I want us to press in together. Let me just ask you a question. Is there anything more important that you can think of that we could do when we gather together than pray? We preach the Word and then we pray. Did you know that when we pray for lengthy periods of time, that number one, we're not doing that just to torture you. And number two, we're doing that on purpose. We're not just rambling. Because we're hoping to lead you and teach you how to be a praying people because we want to be a praying people. Because we believe that the consistency of our prayers reveals the hungry need of our hearts for God. A lack of prayerfulness reveals self-sufficiency. What we say when me and when you do not consistently pray is that we don't think that we need God. We really believe that we can do this without it. But the Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So this is a priority when we're together that we pray. We adore God. We confess our sin. We offer thanksgiving. We intercede for others. Friends, when this should be going on in your own individual life and mine, and we can all grow in this, but when we gather, we want unbelievers to come. We encourage and invite unbelievers to come. And you should invite an unbeliever to come next Sunday. But when they come, make no bones about it. We intentionally design our services in such a way that those who only pretend to love God are merely bored to death. They're bored to death. Because we're totally dependent upon hearing from God and His Word. Let me give you just a few practical helps that have been helpful in my life and maybe it'll be helpful in yours. Maybe you want to jot a few of these down when it comes to prayer. Prayer should be as natural as breathing and we should pray everywhere we are. We should live our lives before the face of God in communion with Him. But let me stop you right there and ask you, you, how many of you consistently have a hard time praying and keeping your train of thought while you pray? How many of you start praying and you end up doing something else within 10 seconds? I think that would be many of us. Here's a few helps. You'll notice what we often use is the acrostic acts. This is a good model for prayer. Begin with the A, which is adoration. Just adore God. And then continue to the C in acts, which is confession. Confess your sins to God. And then move to the T, which is thanksgiving. Thank God that every good and gift is from above. And then move to the S in Acts, which is supplication. Pray for yourself and the people around you. It's just a simple model to help train you to stay in the the mindset of prayer. Use the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, also in John chapter 17. Use the Psalms. Just read the Psalms and pray it back to God. Let me give you a model for how the church has prayed for hundreds of years. You can do this with the Psalms, but I would encourage you, just start by doing it with the Lord's Prayer. Take the Lord's Prayer and read the first line, Our Father in Heaven. And then just pray that back to God in your own words. Lord, you mean to tell me that the God of all creation is a Father to me? Hallowed be Your name. Lord, I I really don't want Your name to be great. To be quite honest, I would rather my name be great. But Lord, what is best for Your glory and what is best for my soul and what this world needs is not for my name to be great, but Lord, please make Your name great among the nations. And you just do that through every line. Is that helpful? You can't go wrong when you pray God's Word back to Him in a way that applies to your life. And so take the Psalms. Take take the Lord's Prayer. And then just pray whatever is on your heart before God. If you have children, the first things that you should teach them are the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. And all of those, just pray it back to the Lord. Read it in your own words. You can use the Sunday's worship guide. Take the worship guide from the previous Sunday, and then just take the songs, take, take the Scripture readings, and then just use that to get your prayers going. The point is not so much what you pray. The point is that our prayers and our desires in our prayers more and more closely reflect the priorities of Scripture and not our own lives. A lot more to say about that. Another help would be the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. When I'm struggling to pray, I'll pick one of those up and I'll just read through one. Get that resource, the Valley of Vision. It just stimulates your prayer and you find yourself lost in the Lord and pulls you back from distraction. Regardless, the point is that we should be a praying people. Next, a couple more. Last one, actually. Local and global disciple making. What is disciple making? This should be the foundation of a healthy church. You could define disciple making this way. It simply means helping other people to follow Christ. So we're coming along each side of each other and we're helping commit to the great commission which is learning to observe everything that Christ commanded. This should be the thick culture of our church, disciple making. And not only disciple making among us, where we're helping one another to follow Christ and bring his word to bear on all of our lives, but that should overflow into the lives of the people where Christ is not named around this earth. Did you know that in many places around the world, there are people who will wake up this morning, this evening, go to bed, and there is no church within distance of them. There is no Bible and there is no Christian and there is no access to the gospel. And those of us with the gospel have a responsibility to those who do not have the gospel. And so disciple-making, helping other people follow Jesus Christ. There should not be a single person among us in our church, in our sphere of influence and friendships that has not heard something of Jesus from us. Friends, who in your life, who in your sphere of influence have you not spoke something of Jesus to? This should overflow from our lives and extend to the ends of the earth. We should desire to plant other healthy churches. Well, quickly, just a few minutes, and we'll bring this to a close. But I want to show you the distinctives of a Baptist church. Add everything we've said, and what are some distinctives of a Baptist church? First distinctive that sets us apart as Baptists is that we are a confessional people we have a confession of faith that summarizes what the Bible says and we hold to it. We're not making up what we believe as we go. We've written that down and to join this church, you don't have to believe every aspect of it, but you have to be willing to submit to every aspect of it. If you're an elder or deacon in this church, you have to wholeheartedly agree in good conscience to everything in our confession of faith. And so Baptists historically are confessional. They're very straightforward about what they believe. Second of all, Baptists historically hold to regenerate church membership. What this means is you can't be a member of the church if you're not a Christian. You have to be baptized as a Christian. Believer's baptism. Baptists single-handedly recovered this particular doctrine. Because we believe the church mirrors Christ and those who are in it should be saved. Number three, the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers, which means that all believers are priests before God. Christ is our mediator and we intercede for one another. And then finally, we've talked about congregational polity, which means that we rule ourselves. We're going to present a budget to you. We're going to talk about that if you're a member today. But the leaders and elders and deacons are not in the back room saying, this is what the budget's going to be. We're going to propose that to you. We're going to hear feedback from you. And then on these matters that are central, that make a church a church, we have to agree on together. That's a distinctive of Baptist. And we believe that that's throughout the Bible. But friends, I'll talk more about this this afternoon. One central characteristic of Baptists is that even though they are independent, which means they don't govern each other, each local church governs itself, they are not isolated. And I think it would do our church well to learn to commit and learn from and connect to as many other local churches as we can as much as we can. Early Baptists were independent in authority, but they were not isolated in ministry. I have lunch with at least one or two different pastors from this area almost every week. Can we agree on everything? We can't even agree on a lot of things. But there are areas where we can, and we work together where we can. As we see this throughout the Bible. And then finally, religious freedom. Baptists have championed the idea of religious freedom because each person is responsible before God for their faith and each person should answer to God and that faith shouldn't be coerced. Well, over time, we'll pick up here a few more things I want to talk about next week and we'll bring this to a conclusion. Let's pray together. Father, a lot of things that we have talked about even today, a lot of different marks and distinctives of church life already over time and not even begin to exhaust it, a lot of things that we've talked about over the last six weeks. Father, we pray that first and foremost, that you would continue to cultivate within us a love for the truth and a love for each other and if we're known for nothing else Lord make your name known through us we love the truth and that we love each other and we want the world to know Jesus and we pray that you would increasingly bring health in our own lives in church and help us to learn from other churches around us who are much healthier than we are help us to Encourage other churches around us. And we pray that Christ would be honored and Your name uplifted through Reformation Baptist Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.